Hi, this is Chris Doe, and you're listening to Codeless. My big hairy audacious goal is to impact a billion lives on planet Earth for the better. The problem here is this: the word copying has been demonized as something that's bad. It's unoriginal. It's being lazy. Teaching keeps you honest. Teaching allows you to make your process transparent, not only to you but to others. Over time, you start to learn that the act of making things sometimes is counterproductive to getting an outcome. I start my own company. At the ripe old age of 22, and foolishly just went forward with it, thinking to myself, "I have a short window for my life to fail, and if I fail, this is the best time to do it." I, I think the tool that you use is less important than the ideas that you have to share, and I'm interested in communicating the fidelity of the idea, not the fidelity of the design. Hey there, it's episode 10. Listen, take a minute to give yourself a pat on the back. You could be spending your time doing something else, but you've chosen to hang with me. Now, don't forget to wash your hands while you sing "Happy Birthday" twice, and whatever you do, try not to touch your face. Don't overreact about COVID-19, but take precautions. So, this episode is intended to surprise and jar you from your regular expectations of Codeless. As capable as you are, you definitely don't need me to teach you about no-code tools. I'm a newbie. What do I know? All I do is ask great questions of people who have done much of what we probably intend to do. The best I can do is present their answers in a way where you can see yourself in the conversation and make the connection with something that is important to you. If we succeed today. Your perceived obstacles will no longer be potent enough to keep you frozen from taking action. My guest on this episode is probably one of my biggest gets on Codeless. Chris Doe is an Emmy Award-winning creative and teacher who's been running a motion design and brand consultancy for over 23 years. Today, he's on a one billion mission to teach other creatives. How to value themselves and communicate that value to others. He also hosts the Future Podcast, so make sure to take a listen to his latest episode about connecting creativity with business. He talks with the legendary Marty Newmeyer. I've got to be starkly honest with you. Professionally, Chris and I shouldn't be even hanging out, but I was successful in getting him to jam with me. His origin story and point of view have huge overlaps for creatives in any field, especially in no-code, where creativity is requiring practitioners to blend design, customer behavior, UX, functionality, and business execution for clients who substantially don't even care about the trend of no-code; they only care about results. In meeting Chris, I've never been so comfortable in the realization that I know nothing. I gained so much from talking to an expert who is confident enough to be vulnerable about what he doesn't know. He has spent decades codifying what he doesn't know, and I'm glad to bring him to you today. We're gonna roll right into an intro from Chris and get into the interview. Enjoy. Hi everybody. My name is Chris Doe. I'm the founder of the Future. We're a content and education platform. We teach creatives how to make money doing what they love. For the past 20 plus years, I've run a 
motion design agency called Blind, which I've fully transitioned out into now just becoming a full-time educator. So listen, I just wanted to start off saying like, I'm really appreciative of you coming on and talking. I'm curious, I wanna ask you this. What made you say yes when I asked you to come on? Hmm. I don't want to give away my formula, but I will try and hint at a couple of things and I'll describe it as this. The reason why I say I said yes to you is because there's an energy and a vibe that I feel from how people approach me. I, I make a lot of assumptions about who you are and I have to kind of determine in my mind, is this a person that is going to help further the conversation? Are they going to ask me important questions? Do you have an audience I want to reach? And if those are all yes, then I do the podcast. Thank you for saying that because not only do I have to take that as advice for later, but as I reach out to, to people, I've noticed that people can see through the BS if you're not coming at it authentically and honestly. Yeah. The only thing you can do is to be authentic. Everything else is faking it. And I don't like that. And, and there's a genuineness. Like if you're familiar with a person, if you're a fan of the person, if you've seen some of their content, I would suggest anybody is trying to reach out to somebody that they want to have a conversation with to approach it from that place. Like I like this piece and be specific, or I've been following or watching this thing and this really helped me in my journey. I'd love to have more dialogue with you. What you have to understand is people have to be very guarded about how they give their time to other people. So they're making a lot of decisions because when I say yes to you, Edmund, I'm also saying no to something I was working on. I was working on an Instagram post and I needed to finish that. So every time you say yes to something, you're also saying no to something else. Make it worthwhile for the other person. Thank you. Thank you. I want to tell you specifically about why I wanted to invite you to the podcast. So to listeners or to most people in the community that I, I interact with, which is no code, this might seem not strange or weird, but sometimes it's hard for people to make the connection. But in communities and trends and things that are going on, one of the things that I find about people that interest me, and this is specifically to you, is that number one, when personalities or people like yourself speak and share content, there's always this component where I can see myself in what you're saying. Whether you're talking about being an immigrant or starting out and not knowing what you wanted to do. Like, it's almost like I can see myself in that. And just cause I can do that. I feel like I totally relate to everything you say, even if you're speaking Greek, it doesn't matter. And then secondly, one of the big things is of course, there's an alignment that you have in this idea of unlocking creativity and helping people transform into a better version of themselves. And, and that leads me to the third reason, which is, I have this analogy and unfortunately or fortunately, I think in analogies, like that's just how I think. And I'm acutely interested in people that are stages in the sense that when you go to a theater, you go and you're, you're in the theater, you're watching people perform on the stage. The stage is there, it's necessary, but you don't really pay attention to the stage. All you see are the actors performing a scene. And the best companies and people that I interact with are stages that allow their members 
to be the, the best versions of themselves. And that's what I see in your content. So just wanted to give you that. Thank you for sharing that. So with that being said, you have a lot of content out there. And personally, I see a lot of different angles where you benefit people, but I see those angles in the personas that you present. Do you agree with this idea that I think you have like these different personas that you present in the world? Me personally or people in general? Yes to both, but in this specific case, you personally, have you, have you heard that before? I have heard it before and I, I want to explain it. And it's totally true. This is my worldview on this is that everything that I am cannot be expressed or communicated to you or to anybody at one time in one sitting. I'm this full spectrum of, of a human being and that's the complexity of human nature. And if it's like this white light that shoots out at you, but you can only see it if you, sh if you shine it through a prism, then you can see the red, yellow, orange, green, blue, indigo, and you can see all the colors, right? If you try to tell everybody in one sitting, everything that you are, it's like overwhelming. It's like, you're too awesome. There's just too much of you to process and people's wires get fried. And I get that. So what I do is I have to select which spectrum of my visible light that I want to share with each person. And it's going to be different. If somebody is really outgoing, very comfortable with themselves, if I tighten up, if I start to be more reserved, then it starts to make it feel like there's an imbalance of energy. Conversely, if somebody is really quiet and introverted and not comfortable in social settings, I don't want to come into the scene like, oh, here I am. What's going on with you? Tell me about yourself. It's like, it's too much for them. So what I like to do is to kind of match and mirror my energy to what I perceive the person is at a slightly higher level than that. So yeah, there are different personas. There's different energy levels. And you also have to realize when you make content for YouTube, you're staring at a piece of glass. So when I look at a piece of glass and I'm about to introduce a video, you'll see me explode with energy because I imagine a couple hundred people sitting there who are showing up to be a part of this experience. And I don't want to be an energy suck. I want to give them energy. Now, in my normal state of things, I don't go around saying, what's up, everybody? How's it going? I'm so happy to see you. I don't talk like that. That's draining and it's super annoying. But I have to push more energy into a piece of glass so that you at home don't fall asleep, so you stay interested. And so that's a persona that shows up. So yeah, I think there's a wide spectrum of personas. Some of us are more conscientious of it. Some of us are more self-aware and are in control of the personas we wish to show to people. And some of us just react uh, to external stimuli. And I, I like to be more intentional in like what I'm showing to what person at what time. Thank you for that answer. That's a really definitive answer. Hey there, it's me. While we're all physically cut off from our tribes, there's a couple suggestions I've got to keep you busy. Make an effort to check out the 100 Days of No Code Challenge on Twitter, and also make sure to follow the No Code Rumble. You should go to thefuture.com to learn something new and join Chris in the 1 billion mission. They have over 600 videos on YouTube alone. Go to thefuture.com and drop the E in future. Thanks for listening. We're going to get right back to Chris. Enjoy. 
So with, with that in mind, what I'd like to do, because this is especially how I've been able to relate to a lot of what you're discussing, is I'd like to talk through questions in groups of personas, not necessarily asking you to change up your persona right here, but to kind of look at the persona maybe as a chronological milestone in your career, or look at the persona as maybe a client, friend, or customer that you speak to. And, and what I'm going to do here is I'm trying to bring this around because this podcast is about no code and no code essentially, uh, some people call it visual development, but it's essentially a new abstraction on, on coding and, and software development. And what I'm after here is not really to talk about technological tools in no code, especially with you. But what I'm after here is really the mental model required for people to participate and thrive in new and emerging trends. So before we get into the personas, I really want to start with the anchor that got me hooked into your content. And I want to talk about the One Billion Mission. Can you tell us about that? So a while ago, I was watching on YouTube this talk given by Jason Silva. And Jason Silva said, in a very eloquent way, he's like, the new wealth is, is the new billionaire. The new billionaire isn't something that you measure in units of money in a, an account. It's about the lives that you impact in a positive way. And I love that. I was like, hey, I want to be a billionaire. I want to impact lives in, in a positive way. And that sat with me for some time. It wasn't until about two years later that I wanted to give voice to what this idea was. I'm very passionate about teaching. I get a lot of fulfillment from helping others. And so I wanted to set a big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG bag. And my big, hairy, audacious goal is to impact a billion lives on planet Earth for the better. I want to help to improve their condition. And somebody asked me this recently, do the people that you help and the, the people they help, does that count? And I say, most definitely, yes. That's the power and, and gift of education is that you can apply it and you can share it with others. You pay it forward. One billion people is like one in eight people on earth right now, current population, which if you think about it, that's a pretty audacious goal. But if what we do and what we share impacts others and they are able to multiply that out. So if you think about teaching teachers or sharing something with you, then you can share with your audience and they share with their audience. That's kind of a, the, a multiplier effect that I'm after. So that's the one billion mission. Great. That's, that's very interesting. You've not only defined it, but you've also talked about how you're actually measuring that. That's interesting. All right, let's get into something still about you. Tell us about your origin story. I mean, I know you've been doing this for a long time, but I'd like you to tell it yourself. Sure. I was originally born in Saigon, and in 1975, April 30th, the country fell to communists and we had to flee and we fled to America. And we arrived in America in 1975 and landed in Kansas City, Missouri, and eventually migrated to the coast where we rejoined with a very large extended family. And I set, set my roots in Northern California. When I started to figure out my life, I found that there were some consistencies, some repeating patterns. One is I like to create. So I've been creating things all my life. I just didn't know there was a professional outlet for it. So I was tinkering, making things, doodling, sketching, arts and crafts kinds of things, building models, that kind of stuff. And the other theme in my life was the love for education and the desire to build a business. 
So I've had many uh, failed businesses as a kid. I used to sell popsicles to, to kids that were in a lower grade school because our school got out a little earlier. I would take commissions for artwork. I, I tried a silk screening a design company. And I started doing all these kinds of things because as a poor um, immigrant refugee to the country, I, I've always desired things more or greater than what we had. And I didn't want it to be a burden for my parents to get it for me. I saw them working day and night and I wanted to do something on my own. Again, I didn't know that art was or design was a career. I didn't know entrepreneurship was such a thing because everybody around me had a job. So I was a little bit confused, but regardless, I, I wanted to do that. The last part is I've always really enjoyed teaching, sharing what I know with other people. So it's not until many years later that I put all that stuff together. So let's jump forward. I get into Art Center, I study graphic design and packaging. I get into motion graphics, I start my own company at the ripe old age of 22 and foolishly just went forward with it thinking to myself, I have a short window for my life to fail and if I fail, this is the best time to do it because I'm young, I'm not married, I don't have student loans to pay off just yet. And during that window, I learned a lot about business. More importantly, I learned what not to do in business because it was a hot mess. I didn't have a professional portfolio. I didn't understand about marketing, sales, negotiation, or pricing, yet I still created a company, and it was a trial by fire. And years later, I was able to meet a business coach who mentored me for over 10 years, and we met once every single week for 10 years. And that was, in a way, my real-life MBA. And now I, I have the luxury or the benefit, the honor to share what it is I've learned about design, about business, and where those two things intersect with thousands of people all over the world. Wow, that's, that's interesting. And to be frank, for a lot of people starting out, that's a lot of hard work. I mean, for someone to start doing that all over again and learn all the lessons you've learned, I mean, that's, that's a, a tall feat. All right. Having said that, I want to roll into one of these personas that we've talked about. And I want to roll into this first one that is interesting for me. And it's the idea of a newbie and a student. And so what I wanted to talk about in this persona really is what's the biggest advantage of being a newbie in a space? Oh, okay. I don't know if you know this. I'm probably sure you do. Is that most innovations, most breakthroughs in science, medicine, technology come from people who are a know nothing about the industry they're doing or are so new to it that they haven't formed all these opinions and beliefs. There's something about experts and people who have been doing things for a really long time is they start to tell themselves a story. This is the way things are done. This is the way it's supposed to work. This is the way things will always be. So it's hard for them to see it from a different point of view. And this is the, the learner's mindset, the newbie mindset that allows you to see things for what they really are. Everything is new. You're curious. You haven't formed a lot of opinions that aren't based in actual objective truth. And I think this is a very powerful thing. There's another really cool thing about being a newbie, a learner's mindset, which is if you submit yourself to saying and suppressing your own ego and saying, I'm here to learn. Well, when you make a mistake, those are mistakes to learn. And you don't have any expectations or attachment to the person you're supposed to be. Somebody asked me recently, like where I draw my confidence from, like how did I become so confident in my own beliefs? It's because I've always felt that I'm a really good student and I still feel it this day. When I read a book, when I watch a video, when I go to a seminar or workshop, I put on my student cap, which probably never comes off. I'm just trying to demonstrate it, is I'm here to learn. I want to see what this teacher, this speaker, this workshop has to offer. And I will process it like I have nothing 
to impress anybody with. And there's no hidden agenda. I just want to be the best learner. And when I operate in that mindset, if the teacher or whoever is my partner is correcting me on a mistake, I don't feel offended. I don't feel less than. I don't feel like I've failed because that's how you learn. When you make something the wrong way, you have an opportunity to fix it. What I see the opposite happening is people operating under the, I'm an expert, I'm a master, I'm tenured as a professor, and they don't open that door anymore to continue to learn. Yeah. If you're so experienced and you're able to do this, bring yourself into this persona as a student, what's your goal? Maybe as a newbie, when you started in your professional journey and the difference now that you're somewhat of an expert, at least if you don't say so, I do, but somewhat of an expert. And what's your goal now when you get into that persona as a newbie? Mm. One thing I want to say is this, is that the more you learn, the more you realize what you don't know. It's the curse of knowledge, right? When you're ignorant, you think you know everything. So it's kind of strange. It's the opposite of what you think. It's counterintuitive. A learned person has learned a lot of things. And what they usually do is like, I don't know. I still need to search and figure out the answer. They don't make those broad assumptions. That's the interesting part. So in my newbie learner's mindset, I momentarily suppress what it is that I think I know. It allows me to remove my ego from the equation. So I take right. this on into my, until I'm dead. So I know you say it sounds difficult. I mean, anything is difficult and everything is easy. It just depends on the lens in which you look at it. So I think it's harder to be an expert, to hold yourself in that regard than it is actually to submit and surrender and say, I don't know. Okay, that's very meta. I like that. that. (laughs) Let me ask you this. So let's switch. I want to switch now into another persona, which is, I guess you could call it a teacher or a guide. If I could use another word, I'd use a codifier. I heard you say this, I can't remember where on a podcast or on YouTube, is that you actually love teaching for long periods of time. So my question is this, if you only had 60 seconds to teach something to, to a stranger, what would it be? Okay, so let me yeah. think. If I only had 60 seconds to teach something, what would it be? I think what we all need to do is learn how to love ourselves, to have clear understanding of who we are and to be okay with the person that we are today while we work towards the person we want to become. I think from that foundation of self-love and understanding and acceptance, anything is possible. Thank you for that. I think the first way I ever found you was two guys on a marketing podcast mentioned you because of Instagram carousels. Oh. Eric Sue and is it Neil Patel? Yes, those guys. Yes. Right. So a friend of mine in Virginia texted me that podcast and I kept listening to it for a while. And then on one episode, they mentioned you. And I looked at, oh, what are Instagram carousels? Oh, this is interesting. This is cool. What you've advocated now as a teacher is you tell people to copy that. Why do you tell people to copy? I tell people to copy to learn. I listened to this really interesting story about what you need to do to become a blacksmith. You apprentice under a blacksmith. They teach you all the skills that they have. And then they say, you must leave now. You become a journeyman and you travel to another blacksmith who teaches you another angle of blacksmithing. And when you learn enough, you create your own business and you build something. And then that process gets repeated over and over. So a lot of it is just copying. 
the problem here is this, the word copying has been demonized as something that's bad. It's unoriginal. It's being lazy mentally and everything else. It's just not good. And so what do we do? We stop learning. We stop researching. So we spend a lot of energy making bad work that is uninspired in the pursuit of originality. For what reason? It's like we, we are plunging ourselves into ignorance because we don't want to copy. Now, I do need to say a couple things on this. The problem here is this. There is actually lazy copying and there's like good copying, right? So the bad copying takes from a piece of work and you deny the fact that you learn from somebody, you haven't transformed it in any good way and you don't attribute it to anybody. So now you're just plagiarizing at this point. You're saying this is an original piece of work and you're denying the fact that you actually were in a learning process. And so you copied. And this is why people have a bad taste in their mouth when people copy. Got so the, the good way to copy is to acknowledge your sources, to transform the work, and to copy from multiple sources filtered through your lens, and you make something still while giving attribution to everybody that you copied from. Got it. Thank you. All right. I'm going to be selfish here and ask some personal advice. So the carousels are very persuasive in the sense of it's low friction. I just, all I have to do is swipe. I get a bunch of knowledge. I can also form an opinion on what I see. So one of the things I'm going to do, and I got this from my meetup, someone suggested it to me, is to make carousels of everything that I learned from all these different episodes and, and put them out there and share them with the world. My question for you is, so I'm thinking of using um, this tool. I think it's Canva. Mm -hmm. would, would you recommend that or should I be thinking of PowerPoint? Like what should I use? I, I think the tool that you use is less important than the ideas that you have to share. But let me just talk about the tools I know and why to use the tools that I use, okay? Okay. I'm familiar with the core creative suite from Adobe, Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, I know those pretty well. I also have PowerPoint and Keynote. Uh, and uh, I think uh, Google Slides you can use. And uh, I think that's it for me in terms of my area of knowledge, right? And then considering all these platforms or applications, I decided to use Keynote. Uh, Keynote's intuitive. It's, it's limiting in what you can do. So it, it doesn't allow you to go in and then tweak the little parts and pieces that designers so much care about. And I'm interested in communicating the fidelity of the idea, not the fidelity of the design. So people will often say, oh, the lighting isn't right or the kerning between those letters, it's horrible. There's a lot of limitations within Keynote. And I think those are all good limitations. Keynote as a, as a program, its intention is to communicate ideas to people. And so there are tools that are custom built or specific purpose built for you to communicate ideas. You can use pretty much any program. But the one that is purpose-built for communicating ideas is Keynote, PowerPoint, Google Slides. And that's what I would use. Thank you. I was trying to go out and make like sous vide and you just boiled water and said, here, this is all you need to do. Thank you. All right, let's move into another persona. And this is probably one that a lot of people identify you with, a creative, a creator, making things. So in recognizing that, I know that you're also balancing creativity, technical practice, commercial viability, and a range of things. But here's my question. You've identified your blueprint for doing things. You, you want to learn, you want to teach, you want to share it, and you want to keep moving. But at what point in your, in your career did you realize you needed to like codify all this stuff? And how did you pick your specialty, if mm. you think you have one? 
Yeah. So there's two different questions, right? When you teach, you actually have to explain to someone else how you came up with those ideas. So teaching keeps you honest. Teaching allows you to make your process transparent, not only to you, but to others. Five years after I graduated school, there was an opportunity to teach and I took it. And it was scary. And, and students asked me all kinds of questions about things that I didn't know I knew. And it started to allow me to un, unravel or reveal what's in my mind. So we would say things like, that's not an elegant design. And so a student would say, when you say elegant, I think I know what that means. What do you mean by that? And it caught me off guard because we use shared language that we think everybody understands until somebody questions us on it. And it was one of those moments where I remember it very clearly. I had to say, like, so what is elegant? So we can understand elegant by looking at its opposite. Like, what is something that's inelegant? If we try to understand something and it's not clear to us, we should try to understand the opposite. So in real time, my class and I, we came up with a definition and a framework or we codified the word elegant and how we can all work towards achieving a design that universally, at least in this room, is accepted as elegant. So things that are easy to understand, that are clear, that are intuitive, that have the minimal amounts of information or elements that are necessary to communicate the idea, that's elegant. And so we built a slider a slider with parameters on both sides. So we say clear and we say what's opposite of clear, confusing. We say simple versus complex. And so if the slider moves all the way to the left on each one of these things, then we know we have something that's close to being elegant. Somewhere in the middle, it can be interpreted as elegant or not, but we definitely want to be left of middle, closer towards these attributes that we've described. So now students could look at their own design that's on the wall and say, oh, that's, that's confusing that has a lot of unnecessary elements. So maybe we're working against this elegant idea. All right, let's uh, still on creativity. Let's talk about ideation. So especially for creative folks, at least I don't know if it's a stereotype, but I, I do think it's somewhat true. Just by the term being creative, you come up with a lot of ideas, right? Yes. So how do you deal with that? How do you focus on what matters? Yeah. So assuming that somebody has a good process and they understand themselves, they create lots of things. And over time, you start to learn that the act of making things sometimes is counterproductive to getting an outcome. When you get older, you start to learn that the outcome is really important. So if we're clear about what the goal looks like, where we need to be, then it means that there are only a finite number of solutions that can get us there. So it saves us a lot of time by eliminating the things that are actually not moving us towards our goal, towards focusing our energy towards what matters the most. So I'll give you an example. Let's, let's go into analogy. Where, where do you live right now? I'm in Atlanta. Okay, so you're in Atlanta and you want to go to Columbus, right? Let's just right. say the destination. So this is where you are, this is where you want to be. You want to go to Columbus, okay? Right. Okay, now... What's happening is you have to get your orientation, like where are you now? So you have to be present to what's going on and in which direction do we need to head in, generally speaking. Now we know that the shortest distance between two paths is a line, but roads don't work that way. They, they, they veer, they curve, they arc, they go up and they down. Not wholly efficient, but we know as long as you continue to check your compass or your bearings, that you're ultimately heading in the most efficient path towards your destination, you're going to be good. That seems to make a lot of sense. 
Now you know where you're heading, you know the distance, you know how much fuel to get, you know if you need bathroom breaks, and you know the outcome in which you want to arrive at. Now what happens with a lot of creative people is we want to make a cool, interesting design that's kind of fresh. So what happens is you start going here, you start going there, and you go here, and there's a lot of energy, but it's not necessarily getting you any closer to the solution. So people can get frustrated at that. Conversely too, people who have a predisposition towards doing things a certain way, they don't even care about the destination. They just want to go their way. They always head to New York for whatever reason, no matter what the design brief is, I'm going to go to New York. So they go really fast, they go really far, but they go in exactly the wrong direction. So focusing on the end is more important. Okay. So yeah. if, if, if you're focused on the end and how far it's going to take, and then you come down to a set of actions, attributes that you should take to get there. When you're thinking of ideas in that perspective, then your ideas aren't perfectly formed. You're kind of advocating for like an incremental approach. Maybe. I'm not sure. But it's hard to score when you don't know where the goal is. And somebody's like, I can hit the bullseye. Just tell me what wall it's on. So in order for us to come up with a solution to a problem, we kind of have to generally know the direction or the shape of the solution. It's really weird right? Everything else is not going to matter. So what happens is we get clear on our goal, the destination, but what happens is bias takes over. We come up with something that we fall in love with because we've invested time and energy towards it. And then we justify like, this is actually getting me closer to this. This is a problem. Okay. Especially in UX design. It's like, just because I like it doesn't mean it's going to work. And so we try to be as objective as possible and become fully aware of our own biases towards one thing or the other. We have to let the, the result that we're trying to get to dictate what path we take. And it's a hard thing for human beings to do. This is why most project leads aren't actively in the project themselves because they don't have that sunk loss bias working. They don't have the fear of screwing over like 80 hours of work on something because it doesn't work. They come in with their fresh eyes. They say, well, the clients asked for this. This is what we promised them. And this is what you guys are making. We got to get these in alignment right now. Stop what you're doing, realign. So they're the captain. They get to steer the ship because they know where it goes, despite how hard it is on the crew. I want to just segue into another persona, which is really that of being a problem solver. And having said that, I heard you say there's two objectives we have with our interactions with clients or customers. And it's, you said something like, you've got to help the customer or the client think, and you've got to help them or you yourself have to remove objections. Can you talk about the role of language and getting on the same page to do that? Yes. So what you need to realize is that most of us make decisions based on our emotions. And then later on, we rationalize it with our logic, right? And so we don't form fully thought out ideas, just feelings of things like, I don't have a good feeling about this, which is a famous line from Star Wars, right? Or when you meet them, it's like, that person sends me the wrong vibe. I just, they don't get me. We're not in sync. And what you're expressing is this kind of gut instinct, this emotional way of interpreting the world. And this is very helpful for us, especially in a society where we're over-communicated too. 
and we're bombarded with too much information. We have to make decisions like that. So it's pretty good for the most part. So when a client arrives at your doorsteps and says, I need something, I think it's important for us to help them to articulate their thinking and to ease the burden of making the wrong decision. And we do that by listening and asking very thoughtful questions that help to arrive at an answer. So it's not randomly that I ask questions like, what do you think of my shoes, which is totally random. I think like, I have an idea, a hypothesis based on my experience that you need something like this. This is what's happening in my mind. What I do is that I ask questions to either confirm or deny that that's the direction we need to head in. So somebody arrives, they need help thinking, and they use imprecise language. Uh, they might have read an article or on the way over, they thought of a word and they got fixated with that word uh, because they think it's going to make them sound smart or in tune with what young people want. So they might even say things subconsciously to impress you while not wholeheartedly meaning it. If somebody uses a word, what I like to do is to make sure we totally understand the word that's important to you, that you and I have the same understanding of that word. So you're focused on making sure that we both understand that word as opposed to just like, using it and barreling through the customer with your expertise. There's no point. There's a quote, and, and you may have heard me say this recently on a, on a long uh, se video session, which is, there are no such thing as right answers to the wrong questions. And so the client or you make an assumption about what the question is. You're busy answering a question that's completely flawed. So if somebody's um, like, I, I need help building a new uh, video marketing campaign because it's going to increase my business. I said, so, oh, so you need to increase your business. Is there anything that's going on? Is it slowing down? Is it growing? Like, tell me more about that. And then why do you think video is the vehicle to help you grow your business? I don't even accept that when they're ready to hand money over, that video is the answer or their business needs help. Wow. Those are two things well, they brought to me. I yeah. don't make those assumptions. It's an assumption reversal at that point. Got it. I've, I've definitely made that mistake before trying to have something to say or trying to like make sure that I can read my customer. So I'm going to segue into one of the last, well, actually the last persona, which is more of just like a business professional. I don't even know what to call it, maverick, whatever you might. But one of the things that interested me about you is, I guess the analogy is, I use a lot of water analogies. And in negotiations, I've noticed you being like water and being like steel in the sense of you tend to mirror and reflect like energy, but then you leverage that energy back on a client. Can, can you talk about that? Because it seems like in some cases, like you're a steel wall in the sense of whatever people throw at you. Like you can take it, but then like water, you can be polite, but very forceful in putting it back. Can you just talk about that in respect to like negotiation? Mm, okay. The water analogy, right? Yeah. Uh, I think Bruce Lee who, who talks about water, it's like, you want to be like water. Water has no form. Water takes the shape of whatever it needs to take. You pour water in a glass, it takes the shape of a glass. You pour it into a tea kettle, it takes the shape of the tea kettle. It becomes whatever it is. But he's like, don't think water is weak. Water is also very powerful. It could be like a wave crashing against a boat or a shoreline. And water, when directed under high pressure, can cut holes through steel, literally, right? 
just right. water, plain old ordinary water. So what's happening in, in this dance that we're doing, I want to consider it like a dance, is I'm trying to find the pace and the rhythm of my dance partner, my client. And I can see that they're confused by lots of different things and they just need help. So I'm not going to push hard against them. I'm going to embrace and we're going to pivot. We're going to dance and we're going to pivot until we can arrive at a place where we both feel really good about. Sometimes it's not a good fit for me and then I walk away at that point. But oftentimes people use levers of, of uh, power, the power dynamic, like I'm the client, I have all the money and the power. They use levers of knowledge. I know everything, you know nothing to intimidate you, to make themselves feel more whole. Rather than me trying to out alpha the person, I just want to dance with them and understand, oh, I see, you're concerned about your business. And you also don't want to seem like a fool. I'm sensitive to that. So I'm not going to ask you a question that's going to make you feel like a fool. And I also want to be sensitive to the decisions that you have to make on a daily basis. And if I can empathize coming from a place of generosity or even love, and then we can get to somewhere really good. And once I, I'm able to narrow in on that, it's like, yes. So you're saying nobody goes to your site, but you want to spend $200,000 on your site. Does that make sense to you? And if they can see that, they're like, oh my God. So that's where the steel comes in. At some point, we do need to make a decision. We have to come to a place of clarity. And that's when, boom, based on this and this, one of these two ideas is not in synchronicity with the other. Right. What do you want to do about it? The role plays that you see me doing with people where people are like, well, that would never happen in real life. It's true. It doesn't happen in real life. The principles happen in real life, but the actual execution of it doesn't work like that. And I'll tell you why. There's a fantasy that creatives tell themselves about how evil and nefarious clients are, how disrespectful they are, and they blow it up in their mind. So what happens is usually they're fairly inexperienced people who do the role play with me they embody the client is this evil monster and they act a certain way. Well, guess what? I'm matching and mirroring. So I also have to rise to that. And then they see this over the top dramatic role play. In real life, my clients never talk to me like that. If they're disrespectful at some point, I just gracefully bow out. But generally speaking, people don't even behave like that in mixed company, right? We just talk and we talk through the problem. Same application of the idea just the execution of it looks different and that's why people are like oh you're like steel in real life people don't talk to me like that my best example is this there was a big real estate developer multi-billion dollar real estate developer who had seen a bunch of our work wanted to work with us and asked me would i be willing to pitch ideas on this project that they're looking at because they need to hire somebody I said, I do not pitch ideas, but I'm happy to show up and give a presentation of what it is that we do. And they're fine, just show up and do that. Well, guess what this real estate developer did? They brought in other people into the room and they told themselves a different story. They said that we're gonna hear Chris's ideas. And so we sat down and they're like, Chris, what ideas do you have? I said to this person, I was very clear, I don't do work for free. Our process doesn't allow us to do this. And you'll understand why once you start working with us. Like, fine, fine, fine. Just give us your presentation. Then. Two minutes into the presentation, he raised his hands like, actually, I've already heard this. We're, we're good. So I had made the commitment of driving across town with my presentation that I give. And the meeting was abruptly stopped because I wasn't willing to do what they had asked me to do. And they were also maybe misunderstood and thought I would bend, but I'm not. 
And that's kind of the worst case example that I can think of where a meeting ended abruptly. No weird words were exchanged, no ill feelings, shook his hand, said, thanks for having me. I'm sorry you were expecting something else, but I thought I was very clear. Well, in, in speaking about that being like water, being like steel and dealing with clients. So in, in this trend, in this movement, in this community of no code, one problem that always comes up is how people price their work. My question mm -hmm. for you is like, how should we be thinking about pricing the work that we do for the client? Yeah, this one's a deep one. So when it comes to pricing your work, there's a lot of approaches to do this. You can charge hourly, you can charge by the project, you can charge based on value, you can charge based on result. There's a lot of different ways you can do this and no one method works for everybody. Now, unfortunately, a lot of us get default into the, the theory of labor where your value is basically how much time you put into something. And we've seen time and time again, this is totally false, that this is a convenient way to explain an idea, but not an accurate or true way. So essentially, a transaction is made between two parties when both parties see more value in what they get than what they give. That makes sense. The client buys from you because the money in which they pay you is worth less than the end result or the aggravation that they're avoiding by doing it themselves. You, on the other hand, value the money more than the labor because the labor is fairly easy for you. You've been doing this for a really long time. And so what we need to do is to determine the price with the buyer. Now, each buyer is a different person with different needs and they have different value systems. So to come in and say like, my web projects always are 20K, basically doesn't acknowledge the fact that people are different and have different needs. It might feel good to you to say, because it's easy and simple, but you're not truly listening to the person nor are interested in what they're trying to solve. It's like you're, you're making sausages at a factory and you're just like pumping those suckers out. So if you really want to get into this idea of, of, of value and pricing, you need to understand from the other person's point of view what this thing is worth. So for a small operation where their web presence actually won't make material impact on their business, probably not a lot of value. Whereas a company that's an e-com company, almost all the values in a site because if the site doesn't work, if it doesn't process payments quickly, if people don't get a feeling of trust and it's intuitive and easy and simple, well, they lose business. They literally live or die based on whether or not the website performs, period. So even though it takes you the same amount of effort and energy and talent to make two very similar sites, the results are drastically different for each buyer. So what I would urge and encourage each one of you uh, who's listening to this or watching this video later is to think about who's this person, how do they value this, and what kind of impact would this make on their business? Once you understand that, then you can price the project appropriately. Chris, I really want to thank you for coming. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. How can people find you, reach you, connect with you, or just tell you you're an awesome guy? Okay, I appreciate you setting up that question. You can find out more information from us and what we do, the courses we sell and the content that we provide at thefuture.com. And the future is spelled without an E. So just remember, spell a future and just drop the ego, right? Thefuture.com. You can reach out to me directly on most social platforms, including LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm at the Chris Doe. Chris Doe, D-O. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you coming and we hope to catch you another time. All right. 
Thanks very much. This was uh, actually a very fun and informative uh, uh, conversation. Sadly, we've come to the end of this awesome episode, but there's more after the closing credits. I asked Chris to summarize the past decade in his industry and make predictions for the future. His answers didn't just help me look down the road, they helped me look around corners. Please stay safe during this period and remember to practice good hygiene and social distancing. I've got two suggestions to keep you busy while you're physically cut off from your tribes. First, there is the 100 days of no code challenge taking place on Twitter. You can sign up by going to 100daysofnocode.com. The second is the no code rumble. You can follow eight makers over four weeks building businesses in a chance to win $8,000 US. Wow, that's rich. Follow No Code Rumble on Twitter to get caught up. Please rate and review us on your favorite listening platform. It helps us get discovered by more people like you who want to unlock creativity and accelerate transformation. You can reach me on Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Instagram through the Codeless Podcast handle. Just search for Codeless Podcast and you can't miss us. All music provided through the appropriate licensing and permissions. Big thanks for the music to Steph Skilly, Bobby Oddsock, Rmark1313, Raising Sounds, and Prod.NoCredit. You can find more information and links in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on, Chris. I really did want to ask you this after. So kind of summarize the past 10 years, whatever that means to you in your industry or segment, and then make a prediction for the next 10, however bold or crazy it might sound. Okay. The summary of the last 10 years in, in the education space has been the proliferation of many individuals creating uh, content and platforms, figuring it out on their own with one giant success. And the giant success that we saw in the last 10 years was lynda.com. Lynda.com was a great resource and still is for a lot of people. And I think they previously described themselves as on-demand technical training. And they they had an enormous facility and were creating content uh, pretty much as a full-time operation with, at one point I understood over 150 editors working full-time. Like that number in my mind is like just blowing up my head, right? It's like, wow. And they sold themselves to LinkedIn for $1.7 billion. So there is a standard bearer out there for what an education company can ultimately achieve if they, if they hit all the right marks. And where they made a lot of progress was scaling operation. And instead of going B to C, they went B to B. They sold to schools and companies and grew really quickly. And that was amazing to see. And that's what I'm seeing right now. Interesting. Now, uh, sorry, you, if I could just say something. Right, Interesting. And I'd like the listeners to actually make a connection between that and something different like no code. Because what we're noticing, at least I'm noticing, especially in talking to guests, is there are different tracks or segments where you have, I don't want to say it's an indie hacker, but like a, an individual sol- solopreneur maker. You have, that's one track. And then you have startups and small businesses 
But then the piece of the pie that I think is going to help adoption is really enterprise. And you're talking, kind of speaking that language in the sense of using the example of Linda and the education industry. So I thought that's interesting. Okay, so before I talk about the future, you can see at the other end of the spectrum is a company like Masterclass, which I only understand it from a consumer point of view and a little bit of like friends in the industry tell me stuff, right? So Masterclass takes on this idea that education is good and their pitch is quite unique. Let's get world famous artists, musicians, actors, writers to create their first ever class and we'll kill it with production. We'll, we'll put a lot of production into it and build an audience around that. And so they're doing something interesting there. Okay. So here's my critique on both those examples that I shared with you is Linda has, has been very good at teaching us technical things. Sometimes their instructors weren't the most dynamic. I tried to watch their programs and sometimes would fall asleep watching it, literally fall asleep. Then that's a sign that the, the content is not very engaging or the personalities behind the content isn't very good. We see that now we have personalities on Masterclass. These are world famous people and the production is just unparalleled for what we're talking about here in the education space. What I'm also finding out is because you're good at something, because you're famous at something does not make you a very good teacher. Teaching is in itself a whole career path that you need to learn and understand. So there's only a handful of teachers, I think, that are on Masterclass that are actually teaching me something. Everybody else is sharing stories. It's like a dinner party and you're going to tell me four or five great stories and sometimes they're not even that great and hope that I can figure it out on my own. I guess they live up to the Masterclass billing, which is you've already mastered your craft and now you're going to talk to a master to kind of fine tune a few key points. If that's the intention, their audience would actually be very small because there are few masters out there. So there's a problem there. Good business model. I get it. I, I can see how you raise money. I get it all. Interesting. All right. So you're not going to be on masterclass. I can tell that. But <laughs> let's, let's talk about a prediction you want to make. So I'm going to stay in the same industry. So I think these two examples, I'm priming us for the transition to what's next. What's next is this, is... There's a global workforce that is uh, underprepared and undertrained to do the thinking work. Uh, maybe they're prepared to do the technical kind of factory mindset work, but in terms of uh, creativity and thinking, there's not a lot of great programs out there that are available to the masses that are done in a way that I'm hoping it'll be done. Tremendous opportunity there. You and I cannot ignore the fact that there's the coronavirus, COVID-19 and it's creating this new dystopian future where people can't go out anymore. So we're gonna be secluded and we're gonna have to learn how to work remotely. We're gonna have to learn how to spend our time when we're under basically self-imposed house arrest. And I think as the, the, the community gets bigger and bigger and the, the proliferation of viruses and things like this, this is not going to be the end, this is just the beginning of things. And so we have to learn how to work remotely, how to run businesses without meeting people, and how to, to continue to learn and entertain ourselves online. Tremendous opportunity here. I'm trying to figure out, like with my team, without being exploitive here, to sit there and think like, what can we do to help people if they're sick in bed or if they just can't leave home because they're under a four or five day quarantine? We could do something. And we're helping to educate a lot of people how to do distance-based work. So I think that's the future.